Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. Another way to support the podcast is by switching to Brave. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome or used Safari without even thinking, but it's time to upgrade to something better. With other browsers, ads and trackers follow your every move and slow down your loading speeds. The Brave browser is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all the trackers and spyware. So it works just like Chrome, except cleaner and faster. By using Brave, you protect yourself from surveillance. Many popular sites have over 100 trackers, and these trackers can collect your inferred sexual orientation, political views, religious beliefs, even your location, sometimes right up to your exact GPS coordinates. Brave is a privacy-focused browser that blocks all of this out of the box. It also blocks all those annoying banner ads and those commercials on YouTube. Brave even shows you how many ads and trackers you've blocked in your lifetime, and how much data and time you've saved by doing so. It's really satisfying. Switching to Brave is also super easy and quick. You can import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in Brave in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. All you have to do is go to brave.com slash and switch over. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to a new browser. Be ahead of the curve. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Uh, so welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is a great honor. I'm, uh, as all of my family and friends know, I'm a, a massive fan. Uh, but I'm not fan. I got really, really big. So this is uh, this is a great, great honor. And um, uh, your book is is fantastic. It's interesting. I uh, my wife and I have been reading it at the same time as we're reading Obama's new book, where he talks about oh, wow. all of his uh, all of his problems and struggles in office and things like that. It's uh, so yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, it's fantastic. So what inspired you to to write this? Uh, well, let's say that uh, when I decided to join a, politi- a political party that was in 2013, uh, though I had a lot of experience being an activist, doing some volunteer work, so being very engaged in my, in, in my community in, and in different causes, it was the first time that I was actually joining a political party. And I knew that the, it would be more strict because there's rules. A political party has rules. And I knew I didn't necessarily had all the, the keys to understanding and understanding the codes, to be honest. So I decided uh, right away to, uh, to, to have to draw and to write some of the things I was seeing with my, I would say my feminist, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, glasses, because uh, this is a lens that uh, gender lens is something that I, I, I use a lot in my life. And so um, I decided to draw and write a few anecdotes here and there. And I've continued that all along the way. So since uh, started in 2013. 
Yeah. It's what I mean, there's some very what I didn't expect from this book was how funny it is. I mean, there's a lot of it's a lot of it is really, really like funny. Like, for instance, my I would say one of my favorites uh sort of frames in the entire book is where the the guy from the party is telling um your alter ego Simon like how mm-hmm. to dress. And he's yes. you know, don't be too like don't be too sexy. Don't be too formal. <laughs> you want to be approachable, but not too approachable, but not like, and it's just so hilarious. And then he finishes this whole long, completely self-contradictory, maddening rant with, oh, and you know, just be yourself. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, exactly. It's absolutely. It's absolutely um, mirrors the experience that uh, my wife and I have seen as being profs where my wife was told so many rules about how she should dress for the job mm-hmm. nobody ever told me how to dress for the job yeah, you know that's they, for sure. it was uh, but no that's but, I, but that's what i wanted yeah. to be honest this is what i also wanted to be uh, uh accessible light in a way though there's there's important message i do talk about double standards in this book but like you said using humor i think is a good way also to uh, have people reflecting on themselves and uh reflecting on the world Oh, sure. Because I mean, you can, when, uh, when you say things with humor, it's sort of like giving medicine with a mm. sugar coating. People will, <laughs> people will accept, people will accept uh, a very bitter criticism if it comes in humor <laughs> better than uh, if it comes to straight up. But I have one specific question because this is something that I've noticed uh, in studying politics over you know, centuries and stuff like that. Whatever people come into politics with, whether they come from uh, business or they come from military or they come mm-hmm. from uh, from you know journalism, they always usually tend to bring some assumptions from that into the thing, which don't always fit with politics. And there's one particular passage in the book where, uh, which I loved, where you know the the cute little girl is asking her mom. Uh, you know, mom, what does a politics do? Right. <laughs> and, um, and, and then uh, your alter ego, Simone, says, a politician, sweetie. Well, politicians listen. They listen to everybody. <laughs> they help every. They help people get their problems sorted out. And I, I love this vision of politics. And I think it's a vision of politics that is so much better than many other ways of doing it. But I oh. wonder, and this is the, the problem that I, that I want to ask you is, the problem I can see is that if your vision of politics is centered on listening to people, it seems to me that that would make you sometimes vulnerable to listening to very loud voices who mm. take up a lot of space. Mm-mm-mm-mm. So how do you know, how do you know, because most of us, I know yeah, in, my, I, in my neighborhood, yeah, yeah, in my yeah, neighborhood, yeah. Most people are very happy. And so because they're happy, they're quiet. They're living their life. Yeah, they're absolutely. doing their thing. Absolutely. So how, how do you know when it's time to stop listening <laughs> to certain loud voices who maybe are not representing, representing the majority? The, yes. Well, this is a very good question and definitely a question of balance. But for me, uh, I have very um, you know strong values. There's 
things in which I truly believe. For example, I could give you an example where uh, late, just uh, it happened two weeks ago where we, we decided to move forward with a bylaw that will now uh, make it uh, an obligation for promoters to include social and affordable and family housing in their project. And that, if I, if I would have listened, uh, the little minority who were screaming really hard, uh, actually the promoters themselves, I would have, I would have stopped, you know, but ultimately um, having like this value of kind of, of thinking that, you know, having a roof on, t- on top of your head is a fundamental right. And, and I believe we have to do everything possible to make it happen. So at one point you say, okay, I hear you. I understand, but I'm moving forward. Even with the cycling path on a big street, uh, Saint-Denis, where people were, a lot of people were against it and they screamed pretty loud, I gotta say. Though I did listen, I decided to move forward because I know I am changing the way uh, we see mobility uh, in, the, in, in the city of Montreal. And we need to, to get to a new point. We cannot, status quo is not possible for me. So sometimes, even though uh, some voices are really loud, I need to remind myself that I didn't go into politics just to encourage status quo and not to move forward with strong ideas. I I decided to do it because I I want to have a a positive impact on, on, on the city. Yeah, that's a really that's a really fantastic uh, response because the, I've asked politicians before, you know, how do you get around to this problem? And the answer that they've told me, um, you know, usually in private, not mm. in public, is they've said, well, I rely on polls and the oh, polls. Yeah. tell The polls no. tell me what what the majority wants. And mm. that's how I know. But the mm. problem is, as we've seen with the re- most recent election in the United States, mm. is that uh, the response rate for polls is now about three to six percent. So you're getting a very, True. very skewed, skewed. You're not getting the truth from yeah. polls yeah. the way you yeah. did yeah. when we were like in our 20s. And the, in the 80s and the 90s, response rate was 60 to 70 percent on polls. Mm-hmm. So you, you actually could tell what the will of the people was. Uh, now you but can, I feel right? that you're right, but I also think that when you um, make decisions based on polls, is because you only think about the present. Of course, people will will sometimes say something based on their own uh, opinion, but their comfort, because sometimes some of the decision we have to take is about the future, the next generations, and that to me is a responsibility that no politician should forget. They, they're ruling, they're there for the present, but they have to make decisions for the future generations. I truly believe in this. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I remember a Mohawk leader told me once, uh, you know, she was complaining about a particular politician's decision. And she said, <laughs> these people act as if they have no um, future generations. Mm-hmm. Like they're not mm-hmm. thinking about uh, seventh generation or they're not mm-hmm. thinking yeah. about their yeah. grandchildren. They're thinking about like the stock market. They're thinking yeah. about the next quarter profits or yeah. the next yeah. election, you know? So no, that's, Absolutely. that's fantastic. So what I mean, what are you hoping like, like little kids and teenagers who read um, this book, what, what message would you hope that they would take away from it? Right. Well, when I, the book for me is, it's, it's, it's a way of, uh, of um, telling a story, of course, but it's about encouraging people to, uh, be part of something they believe in 
civic engagement to me is very strong. And uh, it, it, in this book, this woman, uh, Simone, decides to go to join a political party. But, but there's so many ways to engage yourself in a cause uh, that you believe in. So uh, this is really a book about saying, uh, you know, my, to share my love to civic engagement and for all the people because Simone is not alone, right? She's, uh, she finds people that believe in her but share the same values. So, so there's something very strong in in, in, in being together as a group, as a community, as a society, moving in the same direction. So hopefully people will say, huh, what about I do something for the environment because I want to I wanna change things? Or how about I do something for this or that? Because I, I think uh, that's what we need. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's so many jobs that I've noticed in society, even just the one that my wife and I do, you know, being like a, a teacher is that a lot of the, sort of the training that leads someone to become like a, a prof is it, it very much attracts and it selects for people who are very introverted, who like to mm. hang out in the library and read books and stuff like that. But then when you're done with the process and you have your PhD and you go and teach, it's mostly a job that involves like being very extroverted and very, and so it's as if all the formation um, is maladapted to what the job is going to be and so the question i had one of the questions i had for you is to what extent do you think the process of getting elected of raising money of of going through uh, political campaigns to what extent is that actually a good um predictor of whether somebody is actually going to be a um, a good <laughs> leader in government because I get this distinct mm. impression that it has almost nothing to do with the with actual the job. job. After. Yeah, you are and, so right. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> well, I mean, it's true. I, I find that uh, ideally, uh, a, a politician has to be has to. It's almost uh, you need to have two CVs. One that is, that is that you're a great campaigner. You're you're good at doing the fundraising, the shaking hands, meeting people, sharing your message. That is so important. But once you get elected, it's about being a good leader, but also a good manager because you do manage money, you manage projects, you need to supervise different things, you need to be good in HR as well. So it is actually two different CVs that a, a, a politician needs. So you're absolutely right. So it's not so it's not always easy to find the the the, the, the best candidates because often and it's kind of normal those are two sets of skills that are quite different I would say so to find a, a person that has both is quite a challenge. <laughs> yeah. Well, when uh, when the when the bars were open again for a little bit, I was uh, I was at Elsa's uh, on Roy Street and I was drinking with a couple of friends of mine. And I was mentioning to one of my friends who's like. A very sexist guy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, and I was telling Does him. Does he know was, that? <laughs> no. Uh, but, well, you um, got to tell him. You got to tell yeah, him. Yeah, well, I have told him, but he doesn't. He doesn't think, but I was telling him about your book. And he said, uh, well, basically, she's trying to, uh, she's promoting that we should have like, uh, like an affirmative action program for politicians to get more women in politics. And I said, mm. no, well, that's completely not true. Uh, first of all, but I said, second of all, your argument would only make sense if you believe that the process of coming to be a candidate 
is the good predictor of what the job is going to be. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't, I actually don't think there's any connection between the two. No, I think it's yeah, like, it's, it's even weaker than the, so when you say that we need to have structural changes to the way in which we choose candidates, if we want to have a more representative democracy, right. what right. do you mean by that? Well, I'm going to say, uh, you're, you're contrary to your friends. I do think that uh, political party should have like goals. Some people will call it, call it quotas. And I'm definitely really comfortable with that. But my party, we decided to have like an objective of uh, of uh, for women, how many women we wanted to have as candidates, and 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 we need need to do the same thing. My party, but all other parties, whatever it's uh, at the uh, at the uh, municipal, provincial, federal level, to have in mind also for uh, racialized people or people coming from a cultural background, because. We need to push it more if we want to make sure that these people get in. But it's also a responsibility of each party to uh, go after people. Because to be honest, as the leader of my party, uh, if I if I wait, um, if I I, can, I could just do nothing, and I know there's going to be a lot of, uh, for example, white male, white men who will say, "I want to be a candidate." But if I want to have diversity in terms of background, experience, but also uh, gender, for example, there has to be outreach. We need to do a real effort. And maybe some people will say, well, if they're not interested, uh, too bad for them. But it doesn't work that way because there are systemic barriers. And that is a, it's proven that there is systemic barriers for, for women, for racialized communities, for Aboriginal people as well. And so... I want to change that, but it means putting efforts, putting training, network opportunities, so people feel like, okay, I think I can fit into this, and I can bring my own experience and bring my own voice. So it's a, it's a, it takes work and efforts, but I think it's the right way to do, to to go. Yeah, I, I wonder. It just just to float an idea that just occurred to me. I wonder if maybe. The problem is sometimes that these desires are framed in the language of justice when in fact uh, mm. you could you could frame it in the language of basically um, sort of legitimacy and like the mm. pragmatic language so for instance if mm. you are um, if you are like a, a government of a federate like I remember when Justin Trudeau said he wanted to have uh, half um, half men half women in his cabinet. And people said, oh, this is like, uh, this is, you know, a challenge. You know, my, my friend Jonathan Case said, oh, this is the challenge to meritocracy. And I said, well, no, you, you have a big federal system, a federal government of a mm-hmm. huge country. Mm-hmm. And if the government is going to have legitimacy, it has to look like it reflects the country. Absolutely. So if the country is half female, that makes sense. Yes. If, if, you're, if your cabinet has nothing but... Uh, Anglophone names, Quebec is going to feel like, well, maybe we should separate after all. You know, mm-hmm. if your if your cabinet has nothing but French names, Alberta might think, well, we we're not being <laughs> yeah. we're not being we're not being heard in this federation. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. I think if do you think if maybe the the sort of desire for diversity and inclusion was framed, you know, the way law enforcement does, right? The police mm-hmm. say we want to have mm-hmm. a more diverse police force because that helps us to police better. They don't frame it in the language of justice. 
Say, right. this no, makes us, we can do our job better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do. I, I think that's a very good point. I think we should point both, to be honest, because uh, I think uh, bringing the, uh, the issue of justice also is a way to, uh, for people to have a longer reflection about what needs to be put in place for that to happen, because there's what we need to make sure is that we don't, well, I believe that we need to be aware, and I, I've said that in my previous answer, but we do need to be aware of the reasons why some people don't feel comfortable or why they don't reach those level of power or decision-making jobs, you know? So there has to be a reflection on that. But I, this is a very good point you're bringing, definitely. Yeah. I just wonder, like, so what are some concrete changes do you think that political parties could make which would make it possible for, um, well, let's, let's limit the question to, to, to women, <laughs> to women uh, that would make it possible for more women to actually um, end up as candidates. Well, I mean, in the Bandisne, in the graphic novel, there's a few things I, I share about that, but our party did, like I said, very aggressive outreach we also uh, decided that some uh, some of the great seats would be uh, reserved for women because we wanted to make sure that uh, traditionally women get into politics, but they're more at the uh, the lower level of power where, for example, uh, borough mayors or were mostly men. So we decided that we do we would do extra efforts to really make sure that there would be also women being. Uh, position to become a uh, borough mayors. We also decided in our party that that has happened for two elections is to create this kind of pot of gold where uh, or the guy, the demand candidate and also female that have uh, more financial resources, but mostly men would uh, um, actually gather a bit more money than, than the, the basic. So we would put it in a pot that would be shared after based on different needs. And I did benefit from that in 2013. There was a little bit money missing from, from, for me. And though I did, I did, you know, everything I could through my network, but there is this kind of, this, uh, this, this systemic barriers connected to how women connects and the, the different big networks, how they're being organized. And some people might say, oh my God, this is awful. We're, we're, it's not all women that are like that. I agree, but it's about recognizing that those barriers happen. And so I did benefit from, from that money. And now I'm the mayor of Montreal, first woman mayor of the city of Montreal. So I believe that incentive like that, very strategic and thoughtful uh, actions helps to bring diversity and uh, equi- equity within the, uh, uh, in, in politics. Yeah, that was one of my favorite parts of your book where like she talks about how she's, she's calling up all of her friends and like, <laughs> oh, I just got divorced. Oh, we're mm. behind on our rent. And then meanwhile, these other guys who are lawyers and business people, they just call two <laughs> people and they can raise all of the money in like like five minutes. You know, like they, it's, uh, you know, that's, I mean, that's absolutely true. But, you know, I, I think that's, and it's really important that you mention that because what I've seen, you know, I grew up like my mother was a single mother on welfare in Verdun. Uh, and we were able to have a life of dignity because mm-hmm. there was a co-op that was created by like sort of progressive governments in Verdun on Galt Street, right, right below Wellington. And we were like, uh, 
we were able to live in a place that was uh, very, it was like $75 a month because my mom was on welfare and mm. there was no cockroaches, no mice. It was clean. It was nice. Mm. I, got, I had good public education. Um, and then I was able to like be very successful in life. But I find a lot of people after they've received all of this help from, you know, progressive policies, they get into a position of power yeah. and they, they say, I did this all by myself. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And it's so annoying. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and it's good to, it's good to sort of acknowledge that we have been surrounded by love and support and we yes. need to, to make more of that. The, the last question I had for you was, has to, it's, a, it's a larger problem with regard to uh, our, our system of government. But mm. I'm wondering, you know, our system of government was set up in the late 19th, the mid to late 19th century when uh, cities contained, you know, maximum 15% of the population, mm-hmm. when uh, they were not a, they were not like really big players. Right. Now cities basically have the vast majority of the population. Yeah. They have yeah. most of the economic dynamism. We, we pay the, we keep the lights on. We produce, we pay the vast majority of the tax dollars. Uh, but um, when I pay my taxes, my taxes go to Quebec City and to Ottawa. And then meanwhile, my mayor has to go like, uh, like a squeegee punk, you know, with hat in hand begging <laughs> to try and get money. And, yeah. you know, and this is the same thing for Toronto. It's the same know, thing for Edmonton, for Vancouver, for New York City. Yeah. Uh, do you think we need to fundamentally change our uh, our Because I think basically my taxes should be going one-third federal, one-third provincial, one-third municipal. Mm-mm-mm. Well, the fiscality is uh, totally updated. Uh, it's, it's, it's not connected to the reality of, of cities of the 21st century. I, I totally agree with you. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's not an easy conversation because, we, like you've said, we've been functioning with a, a system for so long. But uh, myself and other mayors of big cities in Canada are all asking the same, the same thing. How can we review the fiscality? How can we make sure that... Uh, because one of the things that I want to mention, you, you said there's more and more people uh, in cities, and you're right, but also there's responsibilities that I, I, as the city of Montreal take care of that before was not the case. I'm talking about homelessness. I can tell you about uh, everything, everything related to uh, climate change uh, because we're at the forefront. So we see everything happening and we're like, we're not going to wait for, you know, that level of government to do something. Let's do it ourselves, but it's costly and it's, it's, it's expensive. And you're right. And after we have to go and knock on door and say, please, pretty, please. Can I have some money for this? Yeah. And that? So it is quite frustrating. Oh, it, uh, drives, it, it drives me completely nuts. I work on the West <laughs> Island and I talk to people on the West Island. And they're like, Oh, you have this and this and your taxes are higher. I said, yeah, because we have to deal with homelessness, yeah. anti-terrorism, like, yeah. all, like yeah. all sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you're you right. living in Santa de Belgium. What do you have to worry about? Yeah. Like yeah. a raccoon yeah. problem? Like, <laughs> like, I mean, like it's really, and the thing is, is all of the, the suburbs, their home, their problems end up being Montreal's problems. Yeah, yeah. Right? At the they same time, no, no, I, I agree. And this is where, 
there has to be a review of that. But um, so far, we, we did try to negotiate a new fiscal uh, pact uh, two years ago with, where we really wanted to open up kind of the reflection. You know, uh, 70% of the revenues of the city of Montreal is 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 solely on 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 the shoulder of of uh, homeowners and business owners. I don't think it's right. I don't think it's fair. It, it, it there should I should have because I see the city of Montreal as a business and I try to be a good manager here. And I think that I I I want to have different ways of making revenues. There's it doesn't make sense that it all depends on property taxes. I don't think this is fair and it's. Uh, it works. But so far, we didn't get uh, much uh, <laughs> openness on that front from the Quebec government. But uh, it is. Uh, well, it I, is think, a I think subject. I ultimately I've, I've looked at this so many times for years and I don't think there's any. I think the only solution that is workable for the 21st century for the future is we need to change the income tax structure mm. so that a third of the income yeah, tax could. go to your municipality mm. because that would immediately eliminate so many problems because what you have is right now um, you can have a a progressive city like Toronto can elect a mayor and they want certain things and meanwhile the like the rural areas can elect a premier that just shuts shuts that all down completely shuts it down and this happens in American states this happens Mm -hmm. all over the place right so yeah yeah, it, it's, a, it's a big problem. But anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And my uh, pleasure. I, uh, pleasure. I'm really, really looking forward to uh, to seeing what your future is going to bring. <laughs> I, I hope you. I hope you will eventually become premier of the province and prime Whoa. minister of the country. So. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, I, well, I'm I definitely think... running for another mandate because, uh, you know, one thing that I, I find difficult this year, of course, the pandemic is so hard on everyone. Uh, but also it's the uh, everything that the, the big uh, changes we need to do around climate change. It, it, we kind of took a step back because of the the, 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 the pandemic. But I definitely want to push forward with this because uh, there's so much we need to do for the future generations. Yeah. Well, speaking of future generations my mother who's the wisest person i know and she lives in verdun uh, she, <laughs> want, she wanted me she wanted me to tell you that uh she thinks you are a total inspiration and you oh. are by she said you are by far the most uh trustworthy person in canadian politics today and oh she loves God, you. and so she nice and she loves her. you so uh, anyway. Oh, well, well tell, yeah. tell, tell your mom that, that that means the world to me. And I have to say, like you said before, I know there's a lot of people that it's okay that might not agree with what I do, but I know that it's nice to hear people that do think that we're doing a, a great job while, while dealing a pandemic. <laughs> yeah. Just, just remember that, just remember the polls are unreliable now. That's and true. I'm telling you, the silent majority in Montreal loves you like crazy. Oh, so. Thank you, John. <laughs> well, you're making my Saturday light. Ta-da! Yeah. It was very right. nice talking to you. And yeah. uh, keep the good work. All and right, say hello care. to your mother, please. I will. <laughs> <laughs> Au revoir. <Okay. laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.